Well, friends, we have some work to do today. When I was preparing this series on 1 Corinthians, I knew we'd be engaging um, some tough stuff, uh, but at that time, I didn't think that I'd be devoting a whole sermon to the topic of same-sex sexual relationships. But the text has brought us here, and it didn't feel right to me a few weeks ago to rush through these verses and just try to squeeze it into like a two or three minute section of my sermon. I felt like we needed to slow down and do a more thorough reflection on this text and this issue. But before reading 1 Corinthians 6, allow me to share a few introductory remarks. While I'll be addressing this issue as an, <clears throat> an issue, I'm well aware that this is personal for some of us and not just a thing that can be discussed in sort of the abstract. <clears throat> Excuse me. We all have friends, co-workers. <clears throat> we all have people in our lives that we know and love who are same-sex attracted. And we care deeply for them. And maybe you're even here today and you know that this issue is not just out there affecting people you know and love, but maybe it's affecting you personally. I'm so glad that you're here. Preston Sprinkle wrote a book a few years ago and I just bought it. It was Black Friday sale. I haven't read it yet. I hope to get to it. It's called People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue. This title really grabbed me. Sprinkle, like me, is a traditionalist on marriage, on matters of marriage and sex. He believes that sex was designed by God to be expressed in a lifelong covenant relationship between a man and a woman. But he cares deeply about, about same-sex attracted people, and he believes that the Christian community needs to be a place of hospitality and discipleship for everyone. I share that posture and hope and I lament that the church has done a poor job in the past. Too often we have resorted to shunning or pushing away. So today as we engage this issue, we will be remembering names and faces, and we will remember Christ's call to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now obviously I won't be able to share all that needs to be shared in the next 30 minutes or so, there isn't enough time to do justice to all the biblical texts, and there's not enough time to make all the applications that need to be made and answer all the questions that you might have. I hope to receive many gracious emails over the next few weeks from people who want to talk more about this. Know that I would love to do that, and know that lunch is on me. I'll actually be pulling it out of my uh, hospitality budget, but... Still, it's on me. <laughs> this sermon will have three parts. In part one, we'll do some cultural and historical analysis to understand our current moment. Part two, I'll offer an interpretation on 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, and share our denomination's recent decisions on what the Bible has to say about same-sex sex and marriage. And in part three, we'll explore some common questions, questions you might have, and I'll offer some other application points. But first, the text. God's word to us through his servant Paul. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 6, 7 through 11. 
The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have, already, you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So first, part one, some history. I think it's safe to say that things have changed a whole lot in the last 70 years. Prior to 1969, there were pretty strict rules against homosexual practice in Canada. Offenders caught in the act were arrested, put in prison, or worse. Initially, this law only applied to men, but in 1953, it was extended to women as well. That's 1953, not 1853. The laws changed in 1969, however. There were still strict rules forbidding public displays of affection, but no longer was same-sex sex between adults considered a criminal offense. Today, things are very different. Homosexual marriage and sex is not only fully legal, it is also fully celebrated, and celebrated everywhere. Every TV show has a gay character. Every politician that wants to be elected basically has to attend the Pride Parade. In 1965, you could lose your job if people found out that you were gay. In 2023, you could lose your job for questioning anything at all in the LGBTQ movement. A few weeks ago, our children were watching a kids' TV show called Ada Twist Scientist, on Netflix. It's a kid's show intended to inspire um, preschoolers, elementary school kids to pursue a career in science. But in season three, one of the episode ends with a lesbian wedding ceremony. What that has to do with kids in science, I don't know. But they put it in there, and it made for some good discussion around the Salverta family dinner table. Ada Twist, Scientist, is a show produced by the Obamas. Speaking of the Obamas, did you know that Barack Obama was against same-sex marriage in 2004? It wasn't until after 2010 that he officially changed his position. So you can see how things are really changing fast, specifically from, you know, 2005 till today. In 1998, things took a big step forward when nearly 200 gay rights activists, activists, advocates met in Warrington, Virginia for a conference they called the War Conference. And out of that conference came, uh, came a three-pronged plan of attack. Desensitize, jam, convert. Desensitize people to gay love and relationships, jam up the opposition to it, convert people to the movement. Here are some quotes from that conference, which they called the War Conference. 
We want a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. The main thing to talk is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seeks desens desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. Never underestimate the power of 200 people getting together in a room. They have accomplished all their goals and so much more. Now, is it a good thing that some of the laws have been changed? Yes, that is a good thing. And I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful to live in a world where gay and lesbian people are no longer routinely called terrible names or beat up or fired or shunned or forced into hiding because of their, their orientation. In some ways, our current moment is more humane than it was before, and that's something we can be thankful for. So the culture has done a tremendous shift. A tremendous change has taken place, especially over the last 25 years. But what about the church? What's God's will? What does God's word have to say? Well, one thing is clear. We who live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are not our own, as Brittany shared last week. Our call is not to keep in step with the shifting spirits of the age. We are called to keep in step with the Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that it's not our business to make decisions for those outside the church. God will judge the culture. But it is our job to judge what happens inside the church. What is God's will for our bodies, and how do we disciple are often unruly sex drives in the way of Jesus Christ. Part two, what does the Bible say? Well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and try to get into what Paul is saying here. Now, recall for a moment that these words that Paul writes are situated in a section dealing with the lawsuits, lawsuits in the church. So two members are having a dispute about something, and they're going to court against each other, and Paul is super upset about this. To the offended party, Paul says, wouldn't it just be better to be wronged? Is that not the way of Jesus in this situation? And to the offending party, Paul has this uh, stern warning. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived Nearly the sexually, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Basically, Paul is simply running through a short list of things that do not belong among God's holy people. Idolatry, no. Sexual immorality, no. Slandering, swindling, thieving, Getting drunk? No. Don't you know, says Paul, that's, that's the way you used to live. That was, that's the old you, the new you that has been redeemed in Christ. You're, you're leaving that stuff behind. Those things do not belong in the kingdom of God. 
Now, each of these sins mentioned deserves a sermon, and chances are that there is one in Paul's list that has your number. And you know, it really isn't fair to only focus on one, is it? And you know, though, the thing is about all the other ones, is that we actually generally agree that these are sins that do not belong. No one believes, no one in the church believes that drinking to the point of drunkenness is acceptable or that theft or greed is okay. And we all agree that sexual immorality um, is to be avoided, even though we all know that it is hard to avoid it. We need help and accountability with these things to choose the better way. But what about the little phrase, men who have sex with men? What is Paul imploring us to leave behind here? The Greek that Paul uses here is actually quite unique and therefore quite hard to translate. You can tell it's hard to translate when you compare different biblical translations. Here here are five. Uh, So NIV 1984, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. NIV 2011, nor men who have sex with men. NET, passive homosexual partners, practicing homosexuals. KJV, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. NRSV, male prostitutes, men who engage in illicit sex. ESV, nor men who practice homosexuality. These are all translations of four words, ute, malakoi, ute, arsenikoitai. Ute means neither or nor, and everyone agrees that whatever Paul is saying here, he's casting it in a negative light. This is behavior that does not belong. The real challenge is translating malakoi and arsenikoitai. Malakoi literally means soft or effeminate. And in the ancient world, it was used euphemistically to talk about males who played the feminine role in a sexual encounter with other males. Sometimes malakoi was used to describe a boy kept for sexual pleasure, sadly a common practice in the Roman world. Sometimes it was used to describe male prostitutes. Basically, it refers to the receiving partner in a same-sex encounter. Now, it's very unlikely that Paul is using malakoi here to refer to boys or sex slaves, for it would be strange for him to condemn condemn those stuck in an abusive relationship. So who is he talking about? Maybe male prostitutes, as the NIV 1984 says, or maybe men who willingly take on the receiving role in a same-sex encounter. Arsenikoitai is a little tougher to translate because, well, it doesn't appear anywhere outside of the Bible. And in the Bible, it's only uh, used twice. It's likely that Paul coined this phrase or created this word. Arsenikoitai is a compound word made up of arsen, which means male or men, and kote, which means bed. But not bed in a literal sense, bed rather in the sexual sense. So a literal literal translation of arsenikoitai would be bedders of men or men who bed men. Where did Paul get this word? Well, it's likely that he cobbled it together from verses that found in the Old Testament. 
Twice in Leviticus, same-sex sexual relationships are talked about in a negative light. And when we look at them, and we'll look at them in a second, actually you can throw them up on the screen now, Ben. Notice how the Septuagint, this is getting kind of geeky biblical language stuff, stick with me. Notice how the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, notice how what words they use. And Paul would have a copy of the Septuagint at hand as it was around at this time. So that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament text. So look at the words. See the words I underlined. Kai meta arsenos u koimothese koiten gynekos. And with a male you should not, shall not sleep as with a woman. And then Leviticus 20.13. See the words are side by side. Kai hos an koimethe meta arsenos koiten gynekos. And whoever will sleep with a male as with a woman, uh, both, both of them have committed an abomination. You see how both words in this compound word are side by side, literally, in Leviticus 20. So Paul is doing a very biblical scholar thing here to do. He's reaching back into the Old Testament, and he was schooled in the Old Testament as a kid and through university. He's reaching back to Leviticus, he's putting together some words, and he's creating a new word out of the words used there. So most believe that the definition in the dictionary is correct. Our sentence koitai means one who sleeps with a man as he does with a woman. So you get the picture. This is the active partner in same-sex sexual relationships. So let's go back to the translation page. Notice the, 2000, the NIV 2011, the NET, and the ESV. Each of these translations see these words as being connected. The NET is probably most accurate to the Greek, uh, but I think the NIV 2011 is most accurately translating Paul's intent. Who's Paul talking about here? What practice is he saying does not belong to people who belong to Christ. He's talking about both partners in a same-sex sexual encounter, men who have sex with men. Now, this translation and meaning is not without debate, and some believe that Paul is not outlining outline same-sex relationships per se, but more so he's talking about abusive same-sex relationships. And it is undoubtedly true that there was a lot of that happening in Corinth. The trouble with this objection is that Paul had other well-known and well-used words at his disposal to speak out against these kinds of relationships. But he doesn't reach for those well-known and well-used words. Instead, being the Hebrew scholar that he is, he pulls from Leviticus. And what we see in Leviticus is that both partners we read back there, are doing something wrong. Paul would have definitely stood against abusive same-sex sexual relationships too, but the wrong Paul is addressing here is more basic than an abuse of power. It's about the misuse of the body. God did not design males to have sex with other males. This conclusion is made by the authors of the Human Sexuality Report, which was a report produced by our denomination in 2021. And this is their conclusion. 
Paul's pairing of Malikos and Arsenikoitai, therefore, signal his rejection of the common Roman attitude of his day. The apostle makes clear to his first century readers that it is not simply the hierarchy of a homosexual relationship that he condemns. So he's not just calling out abusive forms. He's calling out everything. So regardless of whether a person's role is active or passive, their participation in homosexual intercourse is contrary to God's will. And indeed, when we compare this with other texts in the Bible, we start to see that there is a consistent message being shared here. In Genesis, God's design uh, from um, God's, God designs Adam and Eve to be like each other, but different from each other. And it's their complementarity that make them a perfect match. Not only does everything fit just right, but the fit produces a union. And the union carries with it the possibility of children. The author of Genesis concludes, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two became one flesh and felt no shame. The law in Exodus and Leviticus promotes and protects this creational pattern. And Jesus assumes this sexual ethic, and he deepens it considerably. And he points his listeners, his disciples, back to the way things were in the beginning. He references Adam and Eve and God's design for marriage. And Paul remains firmly rooted in this tradition too. What's more, he sees the union between husband and wife as a metaphor for how to see all of reality really as this relationship between Christ and the church and the union of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if there was a loose end somewhere in the biblical, in the somewhere in the biblical witness, I think we'd be free to come to different conclusions on this matter. But as far as I can tell, there aren't any loose ends. What is set up in the beginning is confirmed in the law, is confirmed by Jesus, is confirmed by Paul. Here's the Human Sexuality Report's conclusion on the matter. This survey of relevant biblical texts has shown that Scripture teaches in a clear, consistent, and compelling way that homosexual acts of any kind are sinful and not in agreement with God's will for his covenant people. Now, just as there's big debate over how to interpret, say, 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 9, so is there a giant fight brewing in the Christian Reformed Church over a statement like this. Divisions are forming especially here in Canada. In 2022 and 2023, uh, this conclusion was adopted, however, by our synods with roughly a 73% majority. So now it is essentially the official teaching of the church, and it is the expect expectation that the church and her pastors and councils will both adhere to this position and promote it. But like I said, there's fierce debate, and that will likely continue for some time. As I have mentioned in the past, both Brittany and I are in agreement with this stance. But of course, questions abound, and allow me to ask and answer a few that you might have. 
first, where does homosexuality come from? I'm just, these are just things I'm thinking about and I'm thinking maybe you're thinking about. So I'm going to go through a few. Well, from a scientific perspective, no one knows. We think it's settled, but actually it's not. Here's what the American Psychological Association says. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, cultural influences of sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factor, factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. Some people say it's innate. Others believe that nurture and choice play some role in the matter. So no clear explanations as of yet. Christians have proposed a few explanations. Some believe that homosexual attraction is a result of sin, and it is an act of sinful rebellion. In other words, on this take, the homosexual person has chosen their path and is responsible for their rebellious orientation. Some Christians hold this view, but the CRC does not hold this view. The CRC view is that in most cases, homosexual desire and orientation is not the result of sin or rebellion, but simply something that people find themselves with. Which is maybe sad, but not really surprising, given what we know about the brokenness of creation. You see, Adam and Eve's fall into sin affected, it affected everything. It affected our bodies, our souls, our minds. And all of us are impacted by the fall. Like blindness or deafness, same-sex attraction is not the way it's supposed to be, but it is the way it is in this broken world. So that's how the CRC sees it. Kind of like in a similar way that we maybe see disability. Next question. So is being same-sex attracted sinful in and of itself? No. <laughs> Most of us don't choose the drives that we find ourselves having. When I got married, I had this naive assumption that from that time onward, the only person I would be attracted to was my spouse. But that's not how things work, is it? Our desires and drives, they come out of nowhere. They seem to have a life of their own. And, and those feelings of attraction and desire, are they sinful? No, that's, that's how we were made. Born with a sex drive, implanted in us by God himself. It's natural. But I have a choice about what to do with those attractions and desires. Will I nurture that desire in my heart and fan it into flame? Will I take steps of unfaithfulness? Or will I shut it down? Martin Luther once said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Attraction and desire is a little bit like the bird flying overhead. Lust and action are the bird building a nest in your hair. All of us have to learn to discipline and control our sexuality 
And for Christians especially, we need to learn to submit it to Jesus with the Spirit's help. The same-sex attracted brother or sister shares this call with us. I think the the position of the CRC is helpful here. And this is what you find on the website. I'm just quoting some things here. I think this is very pastoral, perhaps. Homosexuality is a condition in which a person is sexually oriented towards persons of the same sex and for which the person may bear only a minimal responsibility. Persons of same-sex attraction may not be denied community acceptance solely because of their sexual orientation and should be wholeheartedly received by the church and given loving support and encouragement. Same-sex-oriented Christians, like all Christians, are called to discipleship, holy obedience, and the use of their gifts in the cause of the kingdom. In other words, we're in this together. We're in this together. And I hope, hope, hope that I never hear another story from a gay person saying that their church shunned them or kicked them out. No. Next question. Is men who have sex with men a worse sin than, say, drunkenness or theft? No. (laughs) And shame on us when we treat it as worse than other sins. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I need Jesus just as much as my gay friends, and I need accountability to walk the straight and narrow just as everyone else does. Jesus has a lot of words about logs and specks. We're in this together. Next question. If it's all about Jesus, why focus on this sex stuff? Why talk about this? Doesn't it just create division and push people away? Don't preach the rules, Pastor David. Preach the gospel. Well, let me say out loud and clearly that I agree with keeping Jesus at the very center. And I agree that we need to be way more focused on him and what he's done than anything else. And I'll be very happy to move past chapters 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians. We exist as a church not firstly to enforce rules or to fight cultural battles, We exist to draw people of all persuasions, cultures, and orientations into a life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. Only he can forgive sins. Only he can revive a dying heart. And yet, after he revives us, he puts us into the church, and he does physio with us. He calls us to follow him, to walk with him, to become like him, to follow him with our bodies. Jesus is the main thing, but we need to remember that Jesus, our Lord, had some things to say about sex. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He says, anyone who wants to follow after me, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Pastor Sam Alberry, a uh, same-sex attracted man and priest, once wrote this, and I think this is very true and uh, well put. He writes, Ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this, The gospel must must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. 
But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. Jesus is the main thing, but when he gets a hold of us, he starts to shape us and teach us and disciple us to live out our new identity in Christ. There are other reasons we need to talk about this and not just only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. We need to talk about this because, frankly, people in our world are confused. They are hurting. This is not an easy time to be out there, sexually speaking. On the one hand, we've never had uh, more freedom to experiment and express ourselves. But on the other hand, we've never been so lonely and so lost Call me crazy, but I think if the church can learn to share her story and not be ashamed of God's design for sexuality, we might just find that it is attractive to people who are looking for a better way. The sexual revolution is producing a lot of refugees, and we will only be of help if we are willing to talk, if we're willing to go there, and if we are not ashamed of how the kingdom of God transforms sex. And there are many more reasons why we need to talk about this, but I want to get this to this next question, and I know I'm starting to go on kind of long. And that is this, the next question. It just doesn't seem fair. How can God withhold the benefits of marriage and sex from good faith, same-sex, attracted Christians? This really is the question, I think, that, well, is we need to ask, we need to answer, we need to work through. And this question hits hard because we can all imagine ways that same-sex marriage could be a really good thing for, for both people and even for the community, perhaps. Why won't God allow it? What's his reason? I don't have great answers to this question. There's complicated answers, but I won't go into that now. But I do trust, and we as Christians trust, that God is good, that God is more loving than we can ever be, and that his guidelines for life are good too, even when we don't understand them. And you know, it, it's not fair. From our perspective, it is not fair But it is also true that there's a lot that happens in this life that is not fair. We all know people who very much wish that they could have gotten married, but never found a spouse. I know plenty of married people that have super hard marriages and super unfulfilling or non-existent sex lives. When I lived in Hamilton, I got to know an amazing couple, amazing. And they would have been the best parents, but they couldn't conceive. And meanwhile, I was getting to know all these youth at risk roaming the streets of Hamilton. And you know what? They had terrible parents, absolutely terrible, terrible parents. And I thought, it is not fair. One woman I know married a good Christian man, and then a few years later, he deconverted and 
He became an atheist. And suddenly, she found herself married to a man who didn't share her faith, and she had to work it out. That wasn't part of the plan. My grandfather died of a heart attack in his mid-40s. He left behind a wife and six children. Not fair. A former co-worker of mine, blessed with two sons, but both of them born blind and one of them completely nonverbal. Not fair. Scratch the surface of any life and you're going to find heartache, disappointment, pain, loss, big questions that people wrestle with God about. And together we weep and we pray and we don't know why and we hug and we encourage and we remind each other that in this world we will have trouble. But take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Now for a really important question, the last question. How do we support and walk alongside our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters? Well, I can tell you what not to do, and that is don't shun and don't shame. I emailed a few gay friends this week to ask for their advice. Um, one was not in a place where he could respond, uh, and so I will do some follow-up with him. The other told me a few heartbreaking stories. About One was about an email he received from a former pastor. The email said something to the effect of, you're too broken and you're too needy to attend our church. Ouch. I've known a number of parents with gay children, and they've told me stories of how people changed towards them after finding out about their son or daughter. One couple said it was like the parting of the Red Sea in the foyer after church, and they just walked through right to their car. No, not like that. Maybe more like this. Friends of mine in BC took in a 20-something that they had mentored in high school and who had recently come out of the closet. Come, live with us, they said. And he did. They gave him a key to their house, a room in their house. They fed him. They prayed with him. They discerned together God's will for him. More of that. More of that. I personally think that deep, authentic friendship is really, really key. I have a great friend, and him and I do not see eye to eye on this, but we can talk. This man is, has been gay, is, is gay, he's been gay his whole life, he, as far as he can tell. And you know, our friendship went to a new level when I confessed to him some of my own sexual sin. And it made the conversation about us and not just him. And together, we were able to start working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he told me not long ago that he has another gay friend in Alberta who has got no one to talk to. He's got big questions about God and the Bible and faith. There's no one in his life that he can just have a frank conversation with. And he is envious about my friend. He said, at least you have someone to talk about, talk to about all this. Yes, not all same-sex attracted people will like the Christian teaching. Maybe they will be turned off 
But I think we'd be surprised at how many just want to talk and explore in a place where they can feel safe, where they can share honestly, authentically. And that brings me back to this book, People to be Loved. We need to say a big yes to God's teaching. We need to. We need to say a big yes to people. Love God. Love your neighbor. May this be our default posture. I'm going to skip the next slide, Ben. Um, there's obviously more to the story here, and there's more I need to say, but I think we're getting a good picture. Now let me end where Paul ends with this good news. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, drunkards, or slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Paul's assuming that the people reading this letter, that they felt the bill on all, the, all these behaviors before Christ, which means that there's probably some people in the church who used to... Um, men who have sex with men, they're there. They're in the church. But notice the good news. Things have changed, says Paul. You were washed, cleaned up, taken out of the old life, brought into this new life with Christ, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Look, all of us carry shame and guilt with respect to our sexual histories. I have not met a person who doesn't have wounds or hurts associated with their sexuality. It's messy and it is hard to talk about and we bury it because we don't want to go there. And Paul says that Jesus isn't afraid of this aspect of our lives, but he gets down in there and he washes and he makes new and he sets us on a new path. Remember how Jesus engaged the women, woman caught in adultery. All the men were gathering around to stone her. Jesus stepped in. Whoever is without sin, he said, let them be the first to throw a stone. Next slide. Hopefully it's there. My paper didn't print, so. At this, this is how the story ends. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, why? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. No condemnation, but a new trajectory. This is the work of Christ in our lives. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, there, I don't know what to say. Lord, 
may you work through this sermon and your word to touch hearts and lives today. Lord, help us to be courageous, to share. Help us to be empathetic in listening. Help us to model, Lord, your way in our midst so that we might be a place of healing, wholeness, forgiveness, reconciliation, and new direction. Lord, we want to love you in your way and love our neighbor wherever they are. Give us the wisdom to put all this together in a way that honors you in a way that does good to our neighbor. We don't have all the answers, Lord. We know it's going to be messy. Give us wisdom, we pray, that we might live into this teaching with grace and with truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.